Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Just this past weekend, I attended the Lost Weekend Film Festival at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, right here in Virginia. Our favorite genre made a few appearances, and I think that I'll have a few things to share about the two or three films that were made to scare. Before I talk about the first one, I have to give a bit of a shout-out to the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast, who set up shop at the festival and spent time sharing their thoughts on movies and interviewing attendees. If you're curious about any of the films beyond the handful that I'll talk about in the next couple of episodes, check out what they have published in their podcast feed. The first of the movies that I'll mention was The Black Coat's Daughter. It's about a demonic possession. And Catholics. I don't know if you can really have one without the other. A movie about someone being possessed by the devil and then Protestants dealing with it? No, thank you. But this film has a Catholic boarding school for girls, which strikes me as a surefire recipe for all sorts of trouble. And this story features a pregnancy scare and, as I mentioned before, the devil. The pacing is slow, the body count is low, and it does a pretty good job of building a sense of dread and tension. At the film festival, it was one of the divisive movies where either you liked it or you really didn't. I enjoyed it, but I'll agree it's not a perfect movie. 
I would encourage you to check this one out if you can get your hands on it. I'll give you a short bit about a couple of the other movies over the next few weeks, but let's get on to the stories you came here for, hmm? Our first story of the night comes from Patrick McDonough. Patrick McDonough's appreciation of horror and sci-fi stories goes back to childhood when, at 12 years old, he purloined his mother's copy of Stephen King's It and instantly became an avid fan. After decades of reading, he just recently decided to try his hand at writing, with the Demon Chapel of Lowerham Castle being his first attempt. Patrick is also a multi-business entrepreneur, accomplished artist, primarily oil painting, and musician, having worked as a session guitar player, composed movie and television soundtracks, and released an album of original music in 2010. When not in his office working, you can find Patrick embarrassing himself at the nearest karaoke bar. Listen with me to Patrick McDonough's The Demon Chapel of Lowerham Castle. I'll try to recall that night as accurately as possible. If I confuse some of the details or the dates don't match up exactly, don't blame Christopher. His research was always impeccable. It's more likely that the years have dulled my memory. And yes, maybe I wasn't in the best state of mind when I left. Fear does that. But I remember the better part of it clearly and I'll tell it as well as I can. Christopher and I hadn't seen each other in more than a year, I think. Not since we'd gotten together with some of our old college fraternity brothers. An unofficial reunion of sorts, due to Harold being elected to Parliament. We'd all done well for ourselves in the twenty or so years since college, but Harold had been our fraternity president for a reason. He loved life in the public eye. With no shortage of wit or ambition, he pursued that career path right into the House of Commons. His new victory felt like a victory for all of us, and so we celebrated together with a private gathering at his home. But enough about Harold. It's Christopher we're talking about. Christopher and I had always been good friends. The kind of friends that could go the long lengths of time without speaking, that adulthood brings and picks up right where we left off. With easy conversation, too, not just a rehashing of old stories, those shared events we drag out to manufacture a sense of connection with lesser friends. The night of Harold's party, Christopher, while in good spirits, seemed distracted. He couldn't wait to leave. We had a decent chat, but Christopher cut it short. He was studying something exciting. He told me as he put on his coat to leave, but he wouldn't say what. Something life-changing was all I got out of him. I was curious, but not surprised. Christopher had a keen interest in the strange and unusual. That was one of the things I liked about him, actually. He wasn't entirely rooted in the firmness of reality. It came through in his whole personality, from his slightly off-kilter sense of humour to the out-of-fashion bow ties he favoured. He was also a genius. There wasn't anything he'd read that he couldn't quote back to you verbatim. It made him exceptional at the historical research he pursued, a job that, a lot easier when you don't have to flip back and forth referencing twenty different books and cross-checking facts, 
He just cross-checked his own memory. After our brief conversation at the party, I didn't hear from him again for over a year. Then, out of the blue, he phoned me up in a frantic state, practically begging for me to come over and have dinner with him. He kept repeating that he had so much to tell me. He insisted I come right away, but my schedule wasn't free for another few days. So there I was, a week later, in his new abode, sipping wine, while the food from our dinner settled, a roast duck that Christopher's chef had prepared, well-seasoned but a tad dry. I'm being ironic when I refer to it as an abode. It was actually a modest but authentic 15th-century fortress known as Lowerham Castle. Christopher had family money. We all did, to be truthful. But still, a castle. It seemed a bit over the top, even for Christopher. He'd been living there for almost two years, but in that entire time, he hadn't had anyone over. As a matter of fact, he hadn't even told us where the damn thing was until he recently called me. Christopher and I were sitting in the study, next to the subdued flickering of the fireplace. I have to say, he'd looked better. He was pale, with deep circles under his eyes. When I mentioned that he looked tired, he told me he had trouble sleeping recently, but dismissed it with a wave of his hand, saying that he'd gotten over it. He looked eager to speak, but unsure of how to start, so I prodded. Okay, Christopher, what's gotten you so excited? He looked down for a moment and then said, Well, it's something of a long story, but I have to start at the beginning for you to appreciate everything. Not a problem. I've got all night, I said, and took a sip of the Bordeaux he'd pulled from his cellar. All right, well, first let me tell you a bit of Lowram Castle's history. Lowram Castle was built in the mid-1400s. Lord Brenham of Lowram commissioned it as the main residence for his family. The chief designer of the castle was a man named Rowan Crowley. For Crowley, the castle was a passion project, an obsession, really. He was known to sleep on site while it was being built, spending all night poring over the details from the site layout to the intricate masonry work. He paid particular attention to the chapel, though, which, against the prevailing sensibilities of time, was not on a right angle with the main building. Instead, it was off by a few degrees, pointing more directly south than the castle itself. Crowley was a perfectionist, and this was not an accident. His obsession drove him to do much of the work on the chapel himself. He'd banish the other workers from helping or even watching while he toiled the night away inside. Of course, this slowed progress. Lord Brenham pushed to finish it sooner, but Crowley insisted this was the only way it could be done properly. It took a full ten years, but finally the castle was completed and it was beautiful. Lord Brenham... His wife and their two children were pleased to move into their new estate. Years passed uneventfully. Lord and Lady Brenham's family expanded as they welcomed their third child into the world. 
They lived what was a typical life for the privileged of that period. Everything changed in one eventful night. The staff roused Lord Brenham from his sleep, saying there was an emergency in the chapel. Brenham rushed out into the night as quickly as the cobwebs of sleep would allow. His staff hadn't wanted to say exactly what was going on, but the scene in the chapel spoke for itself. Lord Brenham was shocked into full alertness when the horror of what had taken place became clear. Two men on Lord Brenham's staff, Smithson and Fairley, had seen light coming through the chapel's stained-glass windows. When they went in to investigate, they found Rowan Crowley, performing some sort of ritual, kneeling on the stone floor, naked, candles set up in a circle around him, books laid open nearby, all while he recited phrases in a guttural foreign tongue. In his own hand, Crowley held Lord Brenham's youngest son, not yet two years old, by his left ankle. With the baby crying, Crowley began to raise a curved ceremonial blade to the child's stomach, just as Smithson and Fairley burst through the doors and overpowered him. It wouldn't be long before Crowley got his due. Kidnapping a lord's baby, mixed with devilry, wasn't tolerated at Lowerham. With the satanic books found in his possession and a score of witnesses, justice was quick. He was hanged in the town square for everyone to see. But as the gallows prepared to fulfil its duty... Crowley made one last defiant statement to the crowd. Before my flesh turns to naught but dirt and bone, the devil will visit all here. A bit dramatic, I said. And although I didn't think it was silly for a man about to be hanged to make empty threats, hearing it in the atmosphere of the castle study, and so close to the scene of the crime, was enough to raise the hairs on my neck. I think Christopher knew that my attempt to lighten the mood was hollow. He just looked at me with one eyebrow raised and said, That's only the beginning. Soon after the incident with Crowley, the entire family started to suffer nightmares. That's not really a surprise when you consider what they'd gone through. Everyone's emotions were raised by the whole affair, and, and in those more superstitious days, Crowley's threat didn't seem so flaccid. Apparently, Lady Brenham dealt with it worse than the rest of the family. She stayed in her room, leaving less and less frequently, until she became practically bedridden. Then, just when everyone had begun to assume Lady Brenham would waste away in her room forever, the castle was awakened in the middle of the night by her shrill voice, screeching. "'He's here! It's him!' She screamed. The devil's come! Over and over. It only took a moment to realise that the screams weren't coming from her chambers. When Lord Brenham eventually found her, she was in their children's room. She had murdered all three of them in their sleep by cutting their throats. That's horrible, I said, in all seriousness. I was definitely a little unnerved at this point. I took a look around, seeing Lowerham Castle in a more ominous light, and poured myself more wine. When I offered some to Christopher, he nodded, held out his glass for me to fill, and continued. Lady Brenham was committed to an asylum. She never recovered, convinced to the end 
that she'd not only seen the devil that night, but that he'd somehow possessed the children too. She claimed killing them was the only way they could be freed from his talons. After that, Lord Brenham went into a years-long depression and withdrawal from society. He eventually committed suicide on the fifth anniversary of his children's death by hanging himself. Other members of the wealthy Brenham family took possession of the castle, but it fell into disuse. Partly because it wasn't in a fashionable location, but mostly because of the lingering sense of unease the castle held. Two caretakers, who lived off-premises, kept Lowerham Castle in a livable condition. This married couple came by once each season to air the place out and chase away the cobwebs and critters that settled in while the humans stayed away. Sixty years went by like this, with the superstition of the old caretakers being passed on to the new ones. Only clean it once a season, only work in the day, never stay on at night. The story of its original lord and lady were passed along too, along with a healthy dose of exaggeration and embellishment, to be sure, in whispered voices, while making the sign of the cross to instill the importance of following these rules. Eventually, a wealthy aristocrat took an interest in the castle precisely because, not in spite of its gruesome history. Ian Turnbull purchased the castle in 1521. Being a man of leisure, most of his adult life was dedicated to the study of the cult in all its forms. He came across the castle while investigating the coincidental placement of certain religious and ceremonial buildings along straight geographic lines. 400 years later, Alfred Watkins would popularise the terms ley lines for this phenomenon. The theory being that there are lines of force on the earth that hold great power. From as far back as the Druids up to modern Christianity, places of ritual and worship were built on these paths to, to tap into the power. Turnbull had his own theories for this. While following one of these ley lines, he came across Lowerham Castle's chapel. Seeing that it was not only aligned precisely with the line he was following, but intersected a lesser line he'd made note of, he immediately took interest. Realising that no one was living in the castle, he asked around, and through the easy wagging tongues of the local townsfolk, he got the full gory history. He sought out the Brenham family to purchase the property, which they were all too happy to sell. Now, Ian Turnbull was something of an oddity himself. It's said that he'd travelled the world. Not the usual places aristocrats went on holiday. He sought out the most dangerous, untamed places on earth. If there was a legend, myth, or local bogeyman, rumoured in an area, he made it a point to get there. Through his travels, he had acquired two unusually dedicated foreign assistants. These men lived with him in addition to the usual staff needed to keep a castle running. Not much is known about them other than their names, Rom and Tal. At this point in Turnbull's life, he focused his occult interests squarely on Lowerham Castle. He realised that the architecture and arrangements of the building weren't coincidental, so his first step was to find out everything he could about Rowan Crowley. 
After Crowley's capture, all kinds of stories had swirled around him. Turnbull discovered that the older residents of Lowerham remembered a surprising number of them. These men and women had overheard their parents talking in whispered tones in the next room as children and repeated what they had heard among their friends, children being almost as susceptible to gossip as adults. The stories ranged from Crowley was a male witch in league with the devil to Crowley knew how to gain immortality from a baby's blood to he was just a lunatic driven mad by his obsessions. The only facts that Turnbull could confirm were that Crowley was not from Lowerham. He moved there for the opportunity to build the castle, and he had designed a few buildings in other parts of the country. He had a reputation as a talented, if eccentric, architect. His place of birth and schooling weren't known, though after his death some questioned whether his educational background wasn't entirely fabricated. After his capture... His home was searched, where all manner of evil tomes and tools were found hidden in an underground room. Some thought there must have been others participating in his black magic ceremonies, but there was no direct evidence of this. As Turnbull studied the castle and its peculiar placed chapel, he found more and more odd things about it, and most startling of which became apparent in the afternoon of the winter solstice. The castle faces more or less northwest, with the chapel located to and aligned with the south. There's a round stained glass window high on the southeast wall of the castle. This window bends light, turning images seen through it upside down. During the solstice, the shadow of the chapel's crucifix, high atop its steeple, is cast directly through this window and into one of the castle's alcoves, in between two cherubs carved into the stone wall. The chilly impression is that two angelic children are presenting a luminous inverted cross, smiling at you in triumphant joy. As I've seen this with my own eyes just this past winter, Christopher said, chilling is probably understating it. Crowley was a madman, but he had a plan. That sounds dreadful, I said. What on earth would make someone go through that much trouble just to make people uncomfortable in their own home? And was it me, or had it gotten colder in the room? The fire was still going, and after two glasses of wine, I should have been plenty warm, but I kept fighting the urge to shiver. The shadows thrown on the walls by the fire were playing tricks with my eyes. Every gilded intricacy in the room's moulded ceiling seemed to dance with a slow rhythm. It was like looking up into a pit of golden snakes. I looked away. Clearly the surroundings, and the wine perhaps, were getting the better of me. Christopher just smiled and said, Oh, his plan was bigger than that. Turnbull started spending more time in the chapel. Sometimes he didn't come out for days, spending the whole time writing his journal and sketching the details of the chapel's architecture. One night, after months of this routine, he came rushing out in a frenzied state. He gathered up his shovel, a pickaxe, and an assortment of other digging implements, and he locked himself back in the chapel. He didn't come out until the next afternoon, and when he did, 
He told everyone except Rom and Tal to leave immediately. They were fired. After that, he was rarely seen again. Rom and Tal made trips into town for groceries and household supplies, but they suddenly seemed unable or unwilling to speak English. Whenever anyone made an inquiry into life out at Lowerham Castle, they just shook their heads, looking confused. Then the trouble started. Over the next year, parents all over Lowerham started waking up to their children crying in the middle of the night with increasing frequency. A rash of nightmares seemed to be sweeping through them. Whenever neighbours got together to chat about the mundane routines of life, work, weather and, of course, the latest gossip, the subject eventually came around to their children's sleeping troubles. As they compared stories, they realised the nightmares were uncanny in their similarities. The children all said they were lying in bed asleep, only to be wakened by the sound of tapping on their window. When they opened their eyes, a black, oily-faced demon, with dimly glowing eyes and a mouthful of carnivorous teeth, were staring back at them through the glass, beckoning for them to open it and come outside. A year later, the first child disappeared. You're kidding, I said. Is that true? Children definitely started disappearing during that time. But wait, like I said, you need the whole story to fully understand. Over the next three years, eight children disappeared. Panic took hold of the small, isolated Lowerham community. Children no longer slept in their own rooms. Some parents went so far as to tie rope from their ankle to their child's every night before bed. No one went anywhere alone. No one stayed out after dark. No children played in the woods. By that third year, a stifling malaise had settled over the entire town, all out of the fear of the Black Curse, as the demon had become known. Of course, no small amount of suspicion pointed towards Lowerham Castle. People knew the stories of the murders there, and were all too familiar with Turnbull's hobbies and interests. Travellers that passed near the castle at night reported seeing strange lights and bonfires. Rom and Tell were seen less and less, and when they were seen, they looked like skeletons, gaunt and tired, sometimes with visible injuries. The town was on the brink of a fully-fledged witch-hunt when Turnbull put an end to the terror himself. <laughs> In a fit of madness, he forced Rom and Tell to commit suicide. He then bought the bulk of his notes and writings into the chapel and set the building on fire. He finished his night's handiwork by writing one last letter, then slicing open his throat. He bled to death sitting on the floor of a storage cupboard, clutching a rosary. In the morning, people in town saw the smoke on the horizon and sent a party of men out to investigate. When they arrived, they discovered not only the bodies of Turnbull, Rom and Tal, but eight tiny skulls in the ashes of the chapel as well. The rest of the children's skeletons were never found. My God, so Turnbull was going around town scaring children half to death. And abducting them. What for? I asked. Well, 
Since he burned his notes, no one really knows everything that went on. The only clue was the letter he left behind. Well, what did it say? Christopher let out a short chuckle. This, he said, is where it gets odd. His letter was a rambling, semi-coherent mess. But in essence, it claimed that the whole of Crowley's original intentions when designing Lowram Castle was to create a doorway to hell. From the arraignment of buildings to the smallest design flourish, it was all built to maximise the unique properties of the land and open a gateway for demons to enter our world. One demon in particular, a fallen angel so vile, even in hell he was known as the Executioner. His name was Alastor. Crowley apparently believed that by conjuring this demon, he could control him, giving Crowley immense power, but he never got the chance, though. Turnbull wrote of how he happened upon Crowley's secret of opening the portal and his desperate struggle to close it again. By the time he figured it out, he'd driven himself mad. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your point of view... The secret of controlling the gateway was lost when Turnbull burned his writings and took a knife to his own throat. Some accepted the tale as gospel and spent the rest of their lives crossing themselves every time the name Turnbull was mentioned. Others dismissed the whole letter as the ravings of a murderer and a child kidnapper who'd lost complete touch with reality. Either way, even the most cynical men avoided going near the castle again. The old adage about time healing wounds is true. Things went back to normal. Children became more and more comfortable wandering further from their parents' eyes, and parents were more and more comfortable letting them. Boys and girls grew up, their memories of childhood faded. Parents got older, their memories faded too. Over the years, the castle's windows fell victims to rock and mischief. Mother Nature did her best to reclaim her land, and time blunted the sharpness of fear until Lowram Castle became nothing but a legend. The ghoulish tale older brother tells younger brother at night after the candles were blown out. Stories of devil worship and murdered children were perfectly scary in the dark, but less threatening once the safety of daylight came and the little brother realized it was all just a story. Nothing but Big Brother fulfilling his genetic obligation to torment his younger sibling. Lowram Castle stayed vacant for another fifty years, until a man named Elliot Cooper acquired it. He knew the castle's sordid history, but his no-nonsense upbringing gave him faith in logic and reason and little else. He set about restoring the castle, making it livable again. The one difference was that he chose not to rebuild the chapel. Cooper didn't have a particularly strong sense of religion, saw little need for a church on his land. Once the debris from the fire was removed, he simply continued the garden up into the chapel's footprint. Cooper made use of the materials left over from the fire. The stone pews became outdoor seats, flagstones from the floor were turned into a walking path, the larger slab of the dais was left in place for sculptures and bird barns to rest on. 
In the bottom fort of the chapel's exterior wall created a small border to this new little oasis. Time passed. Generations of Coopers made their home at Lower Room Castle, with nothing more eventful than the ordinary scandals and secrets of every family. Then, in the winter of 1821, Elliot Cooper's great-great-great-granddaughter, Emily Cooper, became engaged to Martin York. Her father, Paul Cooper, was pleased both with the engagement and with his future son-in-law. He decided that it would be nice if the couple was married at Lowerham Castle, and set about reconstructing the almost forgotten chapel in their honour. At this point, the legends were so old, they enhanced the appeal of Lorem Castle. Just quaint old stories told to guests after dinner, to give them something to giggle nervously about as they got ready for bed. To keep the castle's congruity, Crowley's original plans and sketches were pulled from the library. Although they weren't complete, they provided enough of a blueprint for another architect to fill in the gaps. With the lower wall still in place and much of the flagstones and dais still available, construction began. It took a large sum of money to rush the construction along, but the chapel was finished within a year. The wedding took place soon after in the restored building. The union was for most part a happy one, Full of all the excitement and fears that come with a new marriage, they had two children, Peter and Michael, born three years apart. As they grew, the children spent their days running through the castle, playing tag or hide-and-go-seek. But they wouldn't play at the far end of the southeast hall. They both had an innate fear of the stone cherubs. When Peter was six and Michael was three, Emily became pregnant with their third child. Within a month, she was having nightmares, horrible dreams that consisted mainly of Emily walking into their newborn baby's room, finding a demon leaving through the window, carrying her child away. She would wake up crying, clutching her growing belly. Her moods started to sour from the lack of sleep. She became obsessed with her dreams, often asking her husband Martin what he thought they meant. Both her husband and her father reassured her that they didn't mean anything, but she became more and more convinced that they did. She started seeking out religious and historical books on the devil, looking for answers to the riddle of her dreams. She grew increasingly detached from reality, one moment arguing with her husband that her dreams were real, and minutes later laughing off the suggestion that she had ever believed in them in the first place. She also developed the habit of opening windows in her sleep. Martin would wake up and find his wife standing in front of their bedroom window, staring out towards the south. When Martin called her name, she seemed to wake up. Looking around confused, she would close the window and climb back into bed, muttering about how cold it was. In the morning, when Martin questioned Emily about the night before, she didn't remember anything more than fuzzy dreams about walking outside. Martin made it a point not only to...
close all the windows at night, but to make sure they were locked as well. It didn't stop Emily, though. He would still wake up and find her standing at the window, silhouetted in the moonlight, staring out across the lawn at the little chapel. During the seventh month of Emily's pregnancy, Martin woke up and saw that she wasn't in bed. He looked over to the window, and to his dismay saw that it was open, but no one was there. His first fear was that she'd fallen out in her sleep. He jumped out of bed to check, but his initial relief, when she wasn't on the ground below, was instantly replaced with dread at the thought of where she might be. He frantically started searching the castle. He found his wife in the children's room. She had murdered Peter and Michael in their sleep, then slit her own throat, killing herself and the unborn child. That's incredible. All this happened here? I have to admit that I was more than ready for the story to be over. I knew Christopher's sensibilities and that he enjoyed these kind of tales, but something about being in the castle made the legend he was recounting more than just legend. It was too real. I could almost see Emily York wandering down the halls in a nightgown carrying a knife from the kitchen as she made her way to the children's room. I shuddered. I swear to you it's the truth. Don't you see, this is what I've been looking for. There's something more to Lowerham Castle. It sounds like there's something awful to Lowerham Castle, I said sardonically, and the chapel too. The chapel especially, Christopher said. After the total loss of Martin York's family... He moved away. Emily's father, Paul, stayed, but remembering the legends had the entire chapel bricked up. Every door, window, chimney, and vent. It became a monument to his deceased daughter and grandchildren from that point on. That's what I've been studying here. That's why I purchased this place. From the first day I came, I knew there was something wicked about it. The more I found out, the more convinced I was of that. But when... Certain recent events gave me proof. I had to call you. Proof? I don't follow you, I said. Christopher looked at me earnestly. Charles, we've known each other a long time. You're the only one I can share this with. It's just too important, too monumental, not to tell someone. He paused for a second. And I need to make sure that I'm not just crazy. What do you mean, I asked. Christopher looked for all the world like a child begging for his parents' approval. I had never seen that side of him in my life. He definitely had discovered something, but I couldn't figure out where he was going with all of this. He looked me straight in the eye and said, I've seen him. I think my heart stopped. I managed to whisper, What? The demon, Alastair, I've seen him. And not just once. He comes back almost every night. Ever since I cracked the puzzle of that damned chapel. What? What do you mean, cracked the puzzle? The look of sincerity in Christopher's eyes had me terrified. I don't know what he had seen, but he believed every word he was telling me. I got into the chapel. 
It's still mostly bricked up, but I managed to break through the stones, covering one of the stained glass windows. It wasn't long before I figured out what Turnbull was up to. How to open the gate? He was almost shaking when he told me this, but the worst part was that he was smiling too. He seemed happy to be telling me, almost proud. Christopher, what are you saying? He comes at night to my window. I've never opened the window, even when he asks. Not with words, no. He just stands outside in the moonlight and motions to me. I don't open the window, but it's tempting. Almost like a physical hunger. Imagine having a demon do your bidding. Imagine the knowledge you could gain. Imagine knowing the secret of immortality, or the whereabouts of hidden riches, or the most private thoughts of your enemies. No, I've never opened the window, but God help me, I want to. He was still smiling as he said this, but his eyes were filling with tears. The room was swimming. I wanted to get up and shake Christopher, snap him out of it, but the other side of the room seemed miles away. I was caught up in a paralysis of fear. The odd trick your mind plays that as long as you don't move, nothing can hurt you. He suddenly looked up at something in the window behind me, and my heart sank into the pit of my stomach. Christopher's smile faded. He managed to look both frightened and relieved. Christopher whispered, He's here! And then I heard it. A slow tapping on the pane of glass directly behind my left shoulder. Shards of ice ran down my spine. I didn't dare look. I sat motionless, frozen in my chair. Christopher looked like he was in a trance. He stood up and slowly walked towards the window. When he was standing next to me, he stopped. He was staring outside. Another slow tap. I didn't turn my head to see what he was staring at. I just looked straight. I couldn't breathe. In a voice too quiet to even be called a whisper, I said, Christopher. He didn't respond. After a moment, his arm lifted, reaching for the handle on the giant lattice windows. Christopher, don't, I said. I heard the soft creak of the window's handle turning. At that moment, I gave in to terror and I bolted from my seat. I raced through the threshold of the study's door, just as I heard the window swing open. I ran as fast as I could, all the way down the hall, never so much as glancing at the long bay of windows on my left. I turned towards the immense front doors of Lowerham Castle, and as I reached them I came to a dead stop. How far away was my car? Twenty feet? Thirty? My heart was trying its best to beat its way out of my chest. Whatever the distance, I had to go outside. There was no chance of me staying in the castle, no matter how frightening the thought of going out there was. Staying would be worse. I took a deep breath threw the doors open and ran for the car as fast as my old body would carry me. 
Maybe I heard heavy footsteps behind me as I crossed the gravel courtyard. Maybe it was just my heart pounding in my ears. I don't know for sure. I jumped into the front seat and sped off into the night. I never looked back, not once. Not even when I swore I heard tapping on the window of my car. That was Patrick McDonough's The Demon of Lower Ham Castle, as read by Ron John. Ron John has written and published children's books, scripts, and screenplays for animation and live action, music lyrics, and libretti. He is a student of strange phenomena and parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more of his work on the Spectre Collector blog, which is at thespectrecollector.blogspot.com.au. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp site, thespectrecollector.bandcamp.com, and also check out Ron John's Hymns to the Cannibal Blood Cult, the Fungus Sanguinarius at the Fruits of Madness blog, thefruitsofmadness.blogspot.com.au, and links to all three of those sites will be found in the show notes. As always, Ron John, thank you. Our second story of the night is from author Nick Wood. Nick Wood is a South African clinical psychologist with over 20 short stories previously published in Interzone, Infinity Plus, Postscripts, Redstone Science Fiction, Fierce Family, and Afro SF, Volume 1 and 2, with Tad Thompson, amongst others. He has a YA sp- a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Like little fiction book published in South Africa entitled The Stone Chameleon as well as a debut novel, Azanian Bridges, from Newcon Press, UK. Currently shortwit listed for a British Science Fiction Award for Best Novel, 2016, Nick has completed a MA in creative writing with a focus on science fiction and fantasy through Middlesex University and is currently training clinical psychologist at the University of East London. He can be found at Nick. 45wood or nickwood.frogwright.co.nz 
Links to both of those should be in the show notes. Listen with me to Nick Woods of Hearts and Monkeys. We are amongst the last of the last. The do not die that the living dead now call us. They follow us, the dead do, whispering and pulling at our ears and hair. The other two don't notice, although they do see and comment on the occasional cock of my head as I listen without comprehension to dry and meaningless whispers from shadowy lips, the occasional repetition of that one phrase, all I can make out. Do not dies. We make our way down the mountain slope to the dense bush and prochia trees below, the drawstring bag bumping on my back. I laugh at their comments about me, my niece and her partner, for I am old enough to have earned the right to be called mad. But why did the dead follow me? I am not an Amarira or traditional healer, nor have I drank Ubulao to make contact with them either here or in my dreams. I carry very little knowledge of the old ways within me anymore. Perhaps this is why they harry me so. None do I recognize, none seem tied to my birth. Their shapes change like the shifting smoke on the horizon, their features blunted and blurred. The path branches through thick grass both left and right at the bottom of the slope. The fork to the right is more heavily trampled and leads between two large boulders. The bushes, laced with yellow-flowered sour-feed creepers and the blackened cone protea trees, crowd the paths more than Bontebok High, scratching and pulling out our skins with a greater intensity than the dead can muster. The foliage releases a wet, stinky oil heat that leaches our bodies of sweat too. Ambongani turns with a relieved hunch to his shoulders onto the well-flattened path to the right. He stops at my whistle. Four of the dead are dancing and waving and warning on top of the large boulders ahead. I point left and immediately regret it. Bongani stiffens and shouts, I am in charge, you silly old woman. You'd both be dead if it weren't for me. I'm still just the good side of sixty. His words hurt a little, even though there may be some truth there. He's quick on his feet and good at herding dam and river fish into the shallows. Me? My bones are slow and stiff, but I have caught a few. Penny, she always just likes to sit and watch. Still the dead dance. I place my hands together in supplication and bow to him slowly, Kutuba. His face softens a bit, but he shakes his head. I've had enough of fighting this bush, Mambele, he says. We've earned ourselves an easier path for now. The dead obviously don't think so, but can you really trust them, especially when you can't hear what they have to say? I have asked them about Janet, but they just gape at me and whisper to each other. I have nothing to give them in sacrifice, wherever they might be, apart from dragging a thorny branch across my right wrist to gorge a wheel of blood. One of the dead prods at it with suspicion, but I feel nothing. The other four have left the boulders. Perhaps it's safe enough. 
Perhaps we are indeed safe now. Bongani and Penny are almost through the boulders as I follow them down the path. Penny's scream freezes me. Bongani is lying on the path, his body crumpled. An umulungu, a white man, stands over him with a broken branch in his hand. Penny's scream rips shut as strong brown arms grab her mouth and body from behind one of the rocks and pull her behind, out of view. Hairy, muscular arms. At least two men. Two young and strong-looking men. The man with the branch looks up at me and smiles, his hair wild and bushy. The blood on my wrist cuddles and stings. I turn and run, back up the path, crashing through the thickened grass that slices my ankles beneath my shorts, before realizing I'm still in sight to anyone chasing. I stop and duck under the branches of an acacia tree, cowering behind the rough and wide base of the trunk, seeking shelter behind thorns. It is long moments before I can hear anything other than pounding blood. Then there is just stillness and the distinct bark of a baboon. My ears stay good and I would hear a chase. Of course. I am old and they have cut enough down for a good few days of sex, whatever they fancy. But why did the dead stay behind with them? I cry. I had promised my brother I would take care of his pale daughter for him, even as he lay and hemorrhaged his life quickly away on his bed. I was the only one there to speak to him, his white wife already two days dead. All over town, all over the land, all over the world, people lay dying to the final deadly twist of Umbulala Sizwe, this nation-killer virus which takes to the winds like an invisible angel of death. At the end of a week of global carnage, very few were still there to watch and share the dying. There's just a sprinkling of us left now, spared by God for an unknown reason. Bongani had said it was as if we were born of the tough survivors. Those who had developed a resistance to HIV during the days the government refused to roll out antiretroviral treatments to its people when it had been an older and kinder virus. He always was a clever one, that Bongani. But now he may be a dead man too, with his words like his body. Dust. Why spare me, God? I am just an old woman. So many have died and yet I still live. Why me? Yes, I am a do-not-die, but I fall asleep with my wet face crusted against a hot tree bark, endlessly saying sorry to my brother. The cold wakes me, cramping my bones and my hips. I see the sun is down, the night and an early autumnal mist stealing in. Light enough still to see, but I know I must move if I am to stay alive. I stand with aching difficulty and stretch stiffly, raw hunger and thirst pulling me back into a hunch. I strip a few tough leathery brown figs from the succulent sour fig creepers, bite the barky stem and sip the sour sticky moisture from within. The wound on my wrist itches but has scabbed. I haul the bag off my back and unpack the last of the dassy meat, cooked and still smelling fine. 
It had been killed by my lucky stone as it had lain sunbathing on a rock amongst its foster brothers and sisters. But why should I eat? Why should I go on? Alone, I am nothing. Even Janus shade avoids me and she is now more than six lunar cycles dead. It must be rising seven months since I was last held in a loving rather than a dying embrace by her. The dead don't hug and even they have left me too, chased away by this damp and creeping fog. Or perhaps something else. No, I will not think more on this and yes, why should I raise this food to my lips even though my stomach begs me to? Because... At least for now, I still can. It tastes good, seasoned by my prayer for Janus shade. I leave the scraps for mourning. None can I spare for my ancestors. I only hope they understand. So I follow the path less travelled, winding its way along the flank of a mountain peak, somewhere south of Silver Mine, I think, away from old habitations where a few of the do-not-dies, cape leopards and caracals, vultures and baboons still look for easy pickings. The stench of death and rotten flesh used to be a guide to when you were getting close enough, but it's all disappeared after the big burn tore through Cape Town and across the flats, reducing so much to blackness and shakol. The fine bowls is used to fire, though, growing rapidly again to strangle everything on the stoops. There is even some drier and thornier vegetation like the acacias marching in from the Karoo, now that the people are almost all gone. All I want is cover for the night, somewhere high in a tree perhaps. I could strap myself against the trunk with the elastic exercise bands from Penny's aerobics classes I had kept for her in my bag. To tie myself onto a tree trunk on high will be the safest thing to do now that I am alone, above and beyond ground scavengers. My wrist burns, so I wipe it with the loss of the sour, soothing juice from a plucked fig. Cries hang on the air. A child's cries. I'll recognize them anywhere, despite never having had any of my own. I follow the shrill sound of a young and miserable voice. As for me, I've been a mother to quite a few, even though my preference for women's company had meant my family wanted little to do with me, but I had been faithful to Janice for 20 years. Thankfully, people's need for work accepts the stiffest of their principles, and I was good with stories and playing with their children, spinning a few good lands for childcare. Janet, though, had been the real businesswoman behind it all, sharp as hell. Paper money is just good to wipe your bum with now. At least coins are still good to open rusted food cans. But for me, dead babies still hurt the most to look at. This child is very much alive, deep in the underbush and trees, in the flats away from the mountain slope. I creep in through the bush slowly and carefully. A live child is bound to have adult carers, and I age this one by its cries as between five and ten. The sobbing stops and there is a low murmur of adult voices, so I slow my creep to a careful hands and feet crawl, testing the ground gingerly ahead of me before placing my weight, praying there are no sleeping snakes.
A small clearing ahead opens and I hear and smell the crackling bite of a smoky fire. Have they a golden stock of matches too? A middle-aged woman sits and cuddles a listless-looking child awkwardly in her arms. A second older child of preteen years, a girl in a tattered green dress, stands and looks on helplessly. A small man circles the clearing suspiciously, thankfully on the opposite side of the clearing, so I pull back slowly into the deeper shadows of the tree. They have a small tent. It is an organized family. I can smell insect repellent. I can also smell the younger child's sickness. The man comes near and I play musical status to the thump in my chest and head. He returns to poke the fire. The child retches and vomits. The woman holds her wrong. Some of the vomit may stick in her throat. I have had enough of death. Mulwaney, hello my friend. I enter the clearing, hands raised. The man turns and points a gun at my head. I struggle to hold my water in despite there being so little left in my bladder. The woman recoils. The child in her arm coughs and keeps coughing. It is a younger girl and she is choking face up in the woman's clutch of fright. The man cocks his gun, a noise that cracks through my head and wets my legs. But I cannot stand still if a child might die. Let me help you out with her, I say, holding my arms out. The man lowers his gun hand down and I can breathe again. The woman stands up but does not hold her child out. Turn her over, I say gently, and pat her back. She does so, watching me wearily, and her child coughs the last of her sick from her mouth onto the ground and begins breathing a little easier, though still panting a bit. I breathe a bit easier too as the man sticks his gun into a belt around his waist after carefully uncocking it. He has a sallow flat face, as if he has distant sun or coy ancestry. The woman is brown but not as dark as me. Her girls are even paler still. The older one smiles at me but says nothing. Her mother speaks in Afrikaans. What is your name? Nolutando, I tell her, relieved and more relaxed. Nolutando ngububele. Only the worst of the schoolies or toasties ever ask for names from those who they intend to kill, as if it gives them further power over their quaking victims, and they certainly don't look after children. Still, the virus has been no discriminator of moral character. I have seen that. The man holds his hand out to me. Are you on your own, Gogo? Do you want to join us? I smile and nod gratefully, blinking tears away, even though I am no grandmother. The older girl shows me a space by the fireside. They have some meat on a spit of wood over the fire, and it looks, thankfully, like chicken. I wipe my legs discreetly with a scented wild mint leaf from my bag before sitting down. They give the little one some moistened crushed butchu leaves for her stomach. One by one, they introduce themselves. Habib and Marlin, Shannon and Tracy. Although Marlin talks for Shannon, the other girl herself still says nothing. 
They had had to move and move fast when the big burn swept through everything, lit by God or someone who was open to purge the world of death stink. The mountain had been wet with late winter rain, so like us, like me, they had found refuge in the woodside along rivers and the large dams. Tired of just surviving, Habib has finally decided to head west and north, where he says some of his family may still live, way up the west coast, deep into dry Nama country. He says the names of his family with a spattering of cliques. Cousin, I nod, for us Amakusa learned our linguistic cliques from much shared history deep in back time with the Khoi and Sen people. He looks at me with narrowed eyes. Is it that my comment was over-familiar, or perhaps he is one of those who think we have taken everything from them since the white man finally gave power over to us, one of those who claim they are the sole indigenous people of this area and country? If so, a silly squabble to hold on to with such a large and empty space now left for so few. And it will indeed be a long, long walk, but I have nowhere else to go. Although I have not seen the shades of any of my family, deep down I know they are all dead. Yet my ancestors have not told me this. I have nothing to give them apart from my own life. Is this why they do not come and why they show me nothing? I voice this disbelief of mine and our words dry up. Behind me, I hear the whispers of voices and turn quickly. There are a cloud of children hanging in the bushes, talking much, saying little. I do not know them. Why are they here? What do they want? Habib stands next to me, peering into the bushes, holding a swaying gun in front of him. What is it, Gogo? What do you see? Nothing, I sigh, turning back to the last frickling coals of our fire. Shannon watches me. In her eyes, I can see she has seen them too. We settle for the night, them in their tent, me on a road mat from my bag. The dead children quieten their whispering when I wave an angry arm at them. I have not yet died, and so I fall asleep with some little hope. I wake to find something sniffing at my face. In my vanishing mist of dreams, I imagine it is Janet at first, until it grunts and flashes its teeth from its grey, hairy face, backing off with my bag in its deft, dark fingers. I sit up, not kiri, straight and stiff with shock, biting back a scream. It has found the last of the dasi and is cramming the meat into its mouth, grimacing at me. I look around, but it is alone. It must be a single male baboon, roaming the bush in search of a new mate, in the hope of starting a new troop. I avoid eye contact, careful not to raise a challenge, and slowly standing up, backing even further away. Despite myself, I let out the slightest of fearful whimpers. The baboon throws down my bag and turns to loop off into the bush. Behind me, I hear a little chuckle. It is Marlin, stretching our arms wide from the flap of the tent door, as if embracing the new day. You've already had a visitor, she says. Did you take everything you had left to eat? 
I retrieve my bag and feel inside, nodding shamefully. Family's share, she says simply, turning to pop her head back into the tent. Get up, you lazy lots. It's getting late. She has a working watch, I notice. To me, the sun is only just creeping over the bushes. The child's shades have gone, as if driven away by the sun. We eat the last of the chicken, sip and splash sparsely from a water jug, pack our goods. Forty-three minutes, she says. It is now 7.25. She hitches up her white frame backpack. Habib smiles mildly. The girls move easily and quickly as if in a well-rehearsed routine. The oldest one, Shannon, takes my hand. Tracy looks a lot brighter herself in the day's gathering heat. How will you find your way, I ask Habib. By the sun? He grins and holds out his scratched compass. I also have a slings beam map. Once we get to the Atlantic, we just keep it on our left. And so it is that we set off west, heading for the sea. Habib leads the way, with Marlin taking up the rear with Tracy. Shannon walks behind me, occasionally skipping ahead as her moods take her, and if the vegetation allows, but still saying nothing. Marlin mentions she has said nothing since almost her entire class died around her, including her three best friends. Instead, Tracy behind me has all the words. Eight years of age she is chatting about how she finally realizes she does actually miss her school. She had been in her third year at Muizenberg Primary, although perhaps it was her own best friend she missed most, Shiren, who likes dappled ponies. Habib takes up the theme before we drown into Tracy's words. So what do you miss most about life before the week of invisible death, Gogo? My partner, I say shortly, thinking too of my online sisters on behind the mask. Oh, he is suitably quiet for a while. As for me, I miss watching Manchester United and IS Cape Town play soccer, perhaps with the odd castle lager for company. Or Jack Daniels, you bloody hypocrite, Marlin shouts from behind. I just want a supply of tampons at the right time of the month and some birth control pills. Perhaps being an old woman is not all bad. We stop for lunch in the heat after making our way up and along another slope that affords us a view of a glittering beach in the distance. No duck, says Habib, the Atlantic coast indeed. The children groan when he hauls another chicken out of his rucksack, salted and sealed. I was a chicken farm manager, he says to me and I have a map of all my company's free-range farms as well as their security access codes in the Western Cape, all the way up the coast. The farms do get very few after Saldana, so we'll need to learn to catch fish and eat mussels and pelemon on the way. Hooray for fish, shouts Tracy, suddenly turning to look at me. Can you tell us a story, Gogo? The flies are buzzing now and we're all well pasted with insect repellents, the birds quiet in the midday warmth as we shelter under a pin-cushioned protea, still charred but having burst its seeds. I try to think of a story that fits our plight and remember our morning visitor. 
Ah, the day monkey saves his heart. Not an Amagosa tale from my culture, but a Bemba tale from Zambia that my aunt Mams had told me when I was of an age with Shannon. So I launched into the story of how God had created the world of man and animal as separate, and they had never seen each other, until Monkey was elected by the animals to visit man, as he was both clever and quick. Once Monkey saw man from a distance, all furless and carrying shiny toes that were planting and harvesting strange foods in the field, he was not so sure it was wise to meet them, however. So he waited until it was night, and then he stole into the field and ate the wonderful food until he was stuffed like a melon. As he was about to head home, a man leaped out with a net to catch him, saying, In my culture we take the heart of all who steal from us. I know not what manner of creature you are, but I want your heart. And, asked Tracy, her eyes big. More tonight, I say, at bedtime. That is not fair. I wanted a whole story. Endings don't come in one easy telling, I say. It is good to learn to wait for them. There is a grumble behind me. Turning, I spot a few vague and shifting child shapes in the bush. Some dead still followers. What will they have of us? We head off again, Tracy mourning until her tired legs eventually steal her mouth. It is sticky hot but cooler in the blustery southeaster moments as the wind swirls through the reeds and bushes around us. Three children priests alongside in the nearby bush as if herding us. Marlin calls the evening camp within sound of the surf thumping through wild dune vegetation ahead of us. She was PA to a middle manager of a local lumber company, I hear, and a well good one at that, it seems. She looks at the plant ground cover underneath us with some curiosity. A strange mix of thick, succulent creeper leaves with thorny, aloe edges, trailing from the bushes we had just gingerly negotiated. Better put plenty of soft reed bedding underneath. This fine bush is doomaker. Weird man, true's God, I don't know this plant. It's like things have changed since it's regrown from the big burn. Habib snorts. Evolution does not work that fast, Lane. She looks at him severely. I'm talking God and devil stuff here, babe, not science. He's another man of intelligence with words like that. He shades his face from her and rolls his eyes at me, smiling. I'm not sure, though. I'm not a plant person, but I have never seen anything like it before either. Habib sighs. Fimbles is the most diverse range of plants per area in the world. Do you women claim to know every one of the thousands of species here? He is right. I'd heard a tourist guide say the same thing about fimbles before, a good few years back now. I make sure the bedding is very thick, spending the better part of an hour, according to Marlene, collecting both wood and rescue reed bedding to put between our mats and the spiky creepers. Night comes in fast and some baying noises hover momentarily on the dying breeze, curdling my blood, for I do not recognize the sound either. I scratch my itchy wrist as Habib gets the fire going. He's aiming to char the last of the chicken and says he is hopeful that we'll reach another company farm by tomorrow evening, 
held bay way on the coastal path and the ridges of the twelve apostles that spine table mountain please finish my story gogo asked tracy shannon comes to sit next to me she gives a little discreet wave and i look up the three dead children sit on a protea bush as if settling down to listen to so monkey thought quickly and told that man that animals do not keep their hearts in their bodies but their lion king keeps their hearts for them and could the man rule him to the king so that he could give him his heart the man agreed but as he rode the monkey to the forest shore monkey started singing calling on the crocodiles to help him the man could not understand the animal language and so crocodiles surrounded them forming a bridge from the boat to the land the monkey ran across their backs and shouted back from the safety of the jungle foolish man don't you know that animals keep their hearts in the same place that men do and feel pain as strongly as you do today if you see a monkey watch what they do to their chests they beat their fists in the place their heart lives as a reminder to man they have hearts also wow says tracy so the chicken has hearts too i laugh and nod wondering if my answer will put her off chicken even more still ongo always tells in the end aunt mom's stand before me and a chill trickles through my body i feel i have almost told her story well but the words have perhaps slipped a little too easily off my tongue and sound both strange and detached from the twilight burnt bush around us mom's put her finger to her lip pointing her left arm behind me the hairs on my neck tingle as i turn the thick vegetation is quiet and still i move towards habib who raises a questioning eye he startles with alarm when i reach in and pull out his gun from under his nearby jersey with a rustle of leaves two men stand in the twilight one wielding a tree branch the other a knife they have big toggle bags on their backs and wild hair and thick muscular arms The ones I have not yet fully seen from yesterday stands both darker and shorter than the other. Habib leaps up, small and fierce with a lag banga in his hand that I had not noticed before, big enough to cut an ox. They laugh and step forward as if two to one, but I level the gun to stop them. It is heavier than I expect, waving a little as I try to steady it in their direction. Where is Penny? Where is my niece? I ask the white man with the tree branch and the wildest hair. He hears me, his glance flickering to his companion. I see her death in the shorter man's eyes. With horror that feels like cold vomit in my bowels, I pull the trigger. But the gun is not cocked. They laugh and both move now, as if to flank us, for I am just an old woman. I can see it in their smiling faces. I drag the hammer back with a loud and vicious click. I rest the gun on my upper left arm and spread my legs to brace for the recoil, aiming squarely at the taller and bolder one. I have dealt with a few men before who would correct my sexuality. He frantically waves the other man to stop, but it is too late. I hear screams behind me. And Janet hovers like a ghost over both the men, shaking her grey ponytailed hair. My finger freezes. The men turn and run clumsily, crashing through the woods, scratching themselves silly in the process, no doubt. I wish the creeper's spines had been laced with puff-harder venom, 
to give them a slow and painful death. With sudden stillness they are gone, as is Janet, not even a drifting mist on the breeze. She didn't even stay one moment to say goodbye. The gun is a block of pain in my hand and Habib takes it quietly from me, uncocking it while I sink to my knees with a salty blurring in my eyes. Shannon cradles my head in her wiry bony arms. I cry like a baby, ashamed but unable to stop. I feel her small hand in my trouser pocket. Child, my pockets are empty. I have nothing to give you. It seems as if the dead have all gone too. Do they still have their hearts? A glimpse of Janet is not nearly enough. Why did you come for them, killers and monsters, but not for me, Janet Lerange? They are asleep, but not me. I feel the pool of the sea and walk over the dunes and down towards the water, feet straining through sand in the bright moonlight. The surf churns out at me, like froth from space, and my ankles chill with the cold ache of his touch. There is no one riding the soft foam that batters my body and steals my breath. Not the dead, nor my ancestors, nor Janet herself. The night and the sea are numbingly empty ahead of me. I carry on walking although I cannot swim. It will be all the more quick then, I hope. The water burns the wound on my wrists, and I stop waist-high. Wait, perhaps my clothes might still be of use to them. Marlene has a slander, Isi Shushu, a warm hand indeed underneath her brusque manner, and the oldest girl feels kind, hanging on my words as if she has none of her own. Habib himself had refused to put down his gun and had given me a warning look before sealing their tent for the night. I turned back to shore, unzipping my track top and folding it neatly on the wet sand. The tide is on the way out. My clothes should be safe here for a while. I feel in my shorts pocket to empty them first, in case there is anything of use to leave lying in sight there, like a coin or two. There is indeed something, a little hard and feathery. I cup my palm and hold it up against the half-moon's light. It is a flower head, dark and heart-shaped, translucent papery petals wet and fraying from its edges, and everlasting it's cold. I'd seen them sprouting from a few of the bushes along our march to the coast. I remember Shannon's thin fingers in my pockets. Gingerly, I put the flower head back in my trouser pocket and shivering, zip on my damn top. I look up at the sky. Above me flies a half-moon, bounced along on scuddly clouds. The moon is an alien world, scarred, old and barren. There must be dead men and women there too, I think. The lunar base now filled with emaciated corpses, rotting in the diminishing air. Supply rockets from China and America stranded like huge empty steel candles on Earth. But I can't see them in my mind's eyes. The moon blinks down on me, white and cold. The wind howls like Machalanga's cries for the moon, long let loose from a spot by one of his children, who falls and dies trying to get to the moon back. The moon is too far gone now and there's no going back. 
It's above and beyond his failing reach, drifting ever further away. And I can't see much Elanga either. The stories in my head are harder to piece together. The meanings of the words dry and crack further on each telling and retelling. A voice calls my name from the sea, parched and thin, but twenty years familiar. I step forward until the waves are round my ankles and knees, tugging me in. A cloud of shadow and vague shape spins before me, but I can smell its her. She always had a slightly musty, almost mint smell on her skin. It's good to see you, Tando. But the dead ask me why you pursue them, sister. I don't. They pursue me. I try to think of something else to say, but there is nothing in my throat. My heart is squeezing sore. I am no sister. They ask why then came you so deep in water when you cannot swim. Ah, I understand. I hold out my hand, but the sheep spins away from me. Her smell recedes, leaving a trace of sadness in the air. I can't stay, Dandu. For now, there can be no more. Why, I plead. I may not find you if you walk to your death. Even now, old lives and memories fade. New spaces and new lands call. So please stay. And you had better learn to swim, Tandije. I cannot say anything, but she is gone anyway. She leaves me the last of her tat comments, sweetened by that Africana miniaturization of my name, which had always been a sign she wished to repair things. But what was there to repair? She has gone, but for now, she had said, and I can still smell her sadness hanging in the salty air. The dead do have heart, it seems, but I am left alone in the here. How long is for now? What is time to the dead? Where has she gone and why did she die before me, after twenty years of love, strife and love again? Questions fly through me, but I, I know better than to ask them of this cold wind. I breathe the last faint whiff of mint on the breeze and pull on my numbed ankles, my feet locked under wet sand from the retreating tide. There is only the sharp, stinky smell of seaweed. Janet is gone. I don't know if I will ever see her again. I turn from the sea but stop as I glimpse a huge, dark woman with fiery eyes rearing out of the ocean, an army of living dead and massed cattle spattering out of the waves behind her. Her name ripples through me, Mo'awuse. The prophetess of old, who claimed the living dead will sweep the British into the sea, provided the Amatosa all had faith and slaughtered their cattle. More than a hundred thousand died for their faith. Perhaps now, a hundred and seventy years later, she has finally repaid their dead doubts. Her blazing red gaze sweeps the land, but she doesn't see me. Perhaps I am too small. Small is good. I feel the tiny, fragile cone and leaves of the damp everlasting in my pocket. Me? I would live. Yes, there is someone I would see still. I have looked into her brown eyes. Shannon, they call her, but she deserves a new name in a new world. She is building a story inside her, and 
I want to be there when her mouth opens to speak, for it will be a strange and terrible story indeed. Shrieks, cries, and howls erupt from further along the shore to the north. I don't know what they mean, but still I shiver. We must go that way tomorrow. We must learn the words of the monkeys and the crocodiles if we are to survive in this burnt and flowering world. I walk over the dunes, looking back just once to see the empty pounding shore. I walk down the slope to my new family. As my Amazulu brothers and sisters say, We're only human through sharing our being with others. Ow! I'm indeed glad the creeper thorns do not have puff out of venom. A host of dead children stand on the edge of our camp, a few turning to glance as I pass, if only briefly. They no doubt wait to share the young girl's story when she finally finds her new voice and learns her new name. As for me, my name is Nolutando Ngobobele, and I am still alive. We shall see what stories the new day brings. That was Nick Woods of Hearts and Monkeys, as read by Amina Badara. Amina is a budding writer and aspiring on-air personality. As a JC, she believes strongly in active citizenship and service to humanity. She loves reading and has a weird penchant for collecting hardcover notebooks. When she's not writing or trying to be a superhuman, she's either looking for X's to solve, seeing movies, or getting her heart broken by Arsenal Football Club. Every once in a while, she blogs at minasthoughts.wordpress.com, and you can find her on Twitter at 09 underscore 11. Thank you, Amina. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever fine podcasts are found. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.